This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are, and welcome to another episode of Ian Weekly. And we do not have Dan with us today. Uh, unfortunately, he got pulled into, as a, as a working emergency manager, there are times when you get pulled into meetings at all sorts of times of the day, and that's what happened with Dan. So uh, we're going to have to uh, trudge on without him. So that's that. Uh, you know, some interesting stuff going on in the world, and, and uh, you know, as hurricanes and things hit us and we're recovering from them, uh, I thought it would be really great to bring in uh, George Siegel, who has the movie The Last House Standing. George, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. And it's it's lunchtime where I am. So this uh, when you said wherever you are here in <laughs> sunny Florida. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah. And it's lunchtime. It, I haven't even hit breakfast yet because it's just that early here. So, right. but uh, yeah. You know, I mean, we're worldwide, George. We're you know, we have people in Australia, we have people in New Zealand, we got people in Russia that listen to us, so it's kind of cool. That is, I was on a podcast in Australia last night. It doesn't come out for six weeks, but uh, yeah, it's great. That's the beauty of the internet, right? We could be all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and that's the cool thing too is it's it's also shrunk in our world down to where you know and and where we see things happening, um, you know, on our live basically around the world you know different things like even disasters and stuff right so i mean our, our world is definitely becoming you know that little blue marble in the middle of the sky and and the, and the space there and and i think it makes us have to do more for humanity I, I believe so yeah one of the things we were talking about last night was all the bushfires that they had over there and what a horrible fire season it was so you know we're familiar now with disasters that happen all over the world you know my film is a focused on the United States, but you could take that same thing and, and plug in the disaster in every other spot and every place has their, their own unique disasters that occur. Absolutely. You know what's neat about that too, though? Um, the idea there with uh, around the world type stuff is that uh, during our summer and, and fire season, um, we have people from New Zealand and, and Australia coming up here to help fight the fire and learn from each other. And then during their summer and fire season, we send firefighters from the United States down to Australia and New Zealand to help out with, with their issues to learn. So we're constantly learning from each other. And I think that's, that's the important part about your film, George, is that you, you were learning from each other um, uh, from past disasters. And, you know, specifically, if you guys don't remember, Mexico Beach got hit with a wallop of, of a hurricane and it pretty much blew everything down um except for this one house uh the, the, the doctor built uh he to this day that i can't find the information on how much he spent on building the house because he, he said he won't share that information um <clears throat> excuse me um but it didn't blow down and i think that's that was the the nexus of your of your uh film talk about that and what made you decide to make the film well, you know in the, in my past life i was a, a tv weatherman so i used to talk about you know you'd forecast these disasters and then we would go out and do stories on them after they would occur and it, a lot of it was the same sad story time and time again different people same story of people that lived in a risky area they didn't really think that the risk would affect them and then they get hit by a major disaster and they lose everything or they have to start over 
And so I've had this thought of, uh, for years of doing this. And um, then Mexico Beach happened. And I said, wait a second, that is truly the last house standing. Now, for some people that live in Mexico Beach, I understand other structures did survive. And but in the area we shot and I had one guy actually argue with me that there were other houses standing. I said, look, I didn't buy this footage over the Internet. I was there with a drone. I saw what was there and what wasn't there. And and this house typified what you would consider the last house standing right where it was. Everything around it pretty much blew down. And it made me think, OK, is everybody going to build like this? No, probably not, because we not everybody doesn't have the money or the resources to go way above code. But the idea is, okay, what are some things we can do to increase our chances of surviving? And we cover in the film a number of different stories about, tragically, people that lost everything in a disaster. And then we point out how they might be able to do things differently, how they might be able to think about things differently. And in the world you're in with all the experts that talk about disasters on a regular basis, you guys are very aware of what's going on. But as the general public, for people like me that are wandering around in Florida and other places, people aren't aren't on board with you guys. They don't know what they're doing. A, a lot of them are so unprepared that it's just pick your place where the disaster is going to happen. We saw it again in Louisiana this year. Mm-hmm. But but what was worse about that storm, look what it did when it got to the Northeast. You know, there's people that were probably watching that going, oh, those poor people on the Gulf Coast. And then it's in their backyard and they're <laughs> having flooding and, and all these problems. And so it, no matter where you live or what you live in, a disaster could potentially happen. And the question is, do you take it seriously and are you willing to prepare for it? And that's one of the struggles that we have uh, in the field of emergency management, right? We, we struggle with uh, really getting that word out for resilience and, and preparedness uh, to, to the community, you know, and, and, and to be fair to everybody, you need to watch the film. First of all, I, I, re- I highly recommend getting it and we'll talk about where to find it here in a minute, but um, it's not just about Mexico beach, Florida, uh, he, he talks about the fires that are, I'm like, you're not here, George. Like he, George, talk, <laughs> George talks about the, uh, the fires that happened in, in Malibu. And in the interesting thing of the homes that burnt down compared to another last house standing um, in, uh, in Malibu where they had the, you, you know, the, the, the defensible space is, is there. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's not just from there. So um the Malibu fire was really interesting because you, you, you really got deep and really got into the human aspect of it. And, and yes, there, there are people out there that say, Oh, you know, don't cry because they're all, everybody in Malibu is super rich and they have insurance, but that's not quite the case, right? It's far from the case. And what's really bad about that, that happened after that tragic fire in Northern California, uh, uh, the paradise, California fire, which was far worse than what happened in Malibu, but there were still seven or 800 homes burned down in Malibu. And what that showed was how unprepared they were when a disaster like that occurred. First, houses that clearly weren't built to survive that kind of thing and had no way of doing it. But the fire department from Malibu went to fight fires in the valley. So the fire department that was there when the fires were hitting Malibu were from other places. They didn't know the area. They didn't know the winds and all the different intricacies of of fighting fire. So they literally made choices of let this house go, let that house go, fight this one, fight that. Wait, we can't do this. So people were frustrated that their house was allowed to burn down because firefighters didn't even know the area or somebody made a choice to not fight their fire for whatever reason. And to me, that that heightened the importance of what you need to take from our film is that once you get in the position that you're relying on somebody else, you're relying on their decision making. Mm-hmm. And how many times do government officials or people 
in power that can save us or, or affect us, how often do they make a decision thinking what's best for us? The only one that's going to make the decision best for us is us. Right. And you need to do that way before the fire occurs. That's that's a major planning thing that most people don't take seriously. And in, in Malibu, a lot of people didn't have enough insurance because there were a lot of older homes. And if you don't have a mortgage or your house was 400,000 20 years ago, and now it's a $3 million rebuild or $5 million, your insurance isn't going to do anything for you. Right. So there's so many factors involved. That was such a, a disaster. The mayor of Malibu, uh, his insurance company didn't even pay his claim. They said he had to go to court to collect his money. And the only reason they did that is because he did not have a mortgage. Right. If they had to fight Wells Fargo or Bank of America, they would have paid it. So I've interviewed some people lately that have told me collecting on insurance is a very difficult thing to do. They don't want to pay that rapidly. Not everybody's going to get paid quickly, but you still I mean, need to have insurance. And that's another problem, right? I mean, with insurance, I mean, you look at the Paradise Fire where um, a couple of insurance companies, the one that I think they had the majority of the homes up there went insolvent, right? You know, and and, and it's interesting to too, and we can get into the whole thing about insurance. I was just reading some stuff about it uh, regarding like how the insurance companies are actually insured, right? And so there's like this, there's this finite pool of of money, uh, you know, that's something like around around eight billion dollars, right? And that money insures all the other insurance companies. And at some point, with a large catastrophe, that pool of money just disappears, right? So uh, it, it's just interesting how that works. It is, but I've also heard it the other way that in, sometimes in years we've thought there's major disasters, the insurance companies still made money. Some of them still made money uh, in those years. And what a gentleman told me recently who is an attorney who goes after insurance companies when they don't pay claims, he said there's a certain percentage of them that they automatically reject. And this happens to people with health insurance a lot. You'll file some claims, they won't pay them right away, they make you do other paperwork or file again. And he said, as they, they know statistically, there's a percentage of people that won't file a second time. Right. And they can just drag it out and make it go longer. So that's that's heartbreaking for people who who need the money after a disaster. And what's even worse is the low lifes that come out after a disaster and take advantage of the victims. Right. So maybe charge them ten thousand dollars to put a tarp on their roof or say, if you sign your benefits over to us, we'll fix everything. And then they take off. When right. we were in Mexico Beach, we know people there that were ripped off fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars of insurance, even more, by uh, scumbags that came out after the disaster. So not only were they victims of the disaster, they were victims of the low lives after the disaster. It's horrible. It's horrible. You know, I, I interviewed um, the founder of the SBP, the startup of Saint Bernard Parish, and now there's called SBP, which is a, a nonprofit organization that goes and helps rebuild homes in, in the disaster area. And, um, you know, I think organizations like that, Team Rubicon, groups that go out and actually help rebuild without having to uh, take people's money, uh, I think th those are organizations that you should really try to tap into first before you, uh, before people start, uh, uh, you know, grabbing these they're bait. They are. You're right. They're scumbags. It's the best way to describe them. They drive around where they go to the disaster zone with some plywood and they make it look like they know what they're doing and they have no clue and they just take money and leave. Yeah. And if, if you if you just had a disaster hit you and you're sitting in your home and it's badly damaged and water's pouring through the roof, the guy that says he can put a tarp on your roof is your hero. Uh, but that's not a $10,000 job. 
you know, that's that's disgusting. And it happened a lot in Panama City and Mexico Beach. And I venture to say it happens a lot everywhere. And it really takes away from all the heroes there are after a disaster, all the first responders, emergency management people, people that are in the insurance industry or construction that are there to truly help right. gets overshadowed when people are taken advantage of. And, and, and that's why, again, we stress you don't want to become a victim because you lose control of your destiny. But on a nice sunny day, rather than sit around and make a disaster plan, most people want to go to the beach or go <laughs> for a hike or do something. And, and then once the disaster is really close, OK, we better have a plan. Well, I would say like here in Tampa, for example, they're really good at handling once the disaster hits. But I don't know how many houses, even in my neighborhood, are built to handle a disaster. We talk about a scenario, the Hurricane Phoenix scenario. They did a study here in 2010 of what would happen if a major hurricane hit this area. The population was much lower then. And they they suggested that 500,000 homes would be damaged or destroyed. Two million people would be hospitalized and need medical attention. And that was before the population boomed. Well, there's still a lot of wood houses around here. And there's still a lot of houses that are older homes, um, houses that are at sea level when the flood level's 10 feet in the neighborhood. So it's crazy how unprepared we still are. Absolutely. Hey, George, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about nails and corners. Oh, I guess it's still me. <laughs> so sorry about that. So I, I, I'm excited to be working with Disaster Tech, the leading decision uh, science platform for risk and science. And Sean Griffin, who I've known for a few years now, he's the CEO of the company, he's a great friend uh, of EM Weekly, and he's a thought leader in emergency management. And so take time to learn how Disaster Tech's DICE solution can help your team plan, exercise across government industry, leverage data and risk and intelligence, and accelerate evidence-based decision-making and ultimately save more lives, more time, and more money. And uh, follow them on Twitter at Disaster Tech Incorporated uh, for more details. That's Disaster Tech INC. Uh, for more updates. And also they're going to be at IEM um, in, in Grand Rapids. I'm going to be there speaking as well. And so uh, make sure you stop by and see them and tell them that Todd sent you. Also coming up in November 17th to the 18th in 2021 here at the Javis Center in New York City is we're going to have the Natural Disasters and Emergency Management, the NDEM Expo. And we're and if you can't make it to New York City, uh, we're going to live stream the event of what I'm going to be part of where we're doing a fireside chat with me, Craig Fugate, Peter Gaynor. And we're going to talk about what it is to be an emergency manager um, at the highest level, you know, working for the president and some of the, pol the, the political aspects of it, what you have to kind of get through, uh, you, you know, and, and some of the challenges to be up there. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. And I really do look forward to that. George, welcome back. Thank you. So when we're talking about building um i i got had the opportunity to um interview uh one of the organizations that you went to you know the place with the big fans and all that kind of stuff right and uh they were discussing the idea that if you add an additional nail to the roof just so said so typically i guess they're using two nails if you use the third nail and then support the corners of the building you won't lose your roof during uh during a hurricane and it seems like that's what the doctor did um, on his house in, in Mexico Beach. What did you learn when you went into that organization um, and uh, interviewed them? 
Well, they study houses that, you know, how they're going to blow down and, and what speed they might be destroyed at. What's interesting, when we were in Panama City, we, we went to visit Habitat for Humanity and saw the houses that they build. And so people say you can't afford to build safe. Well, their houses hold up really well in disasters. Why is that? They use extra nails. The way they do the roofs, the way they attach the roof to the walls and the walls to the floor. And they, the, when one of the construction guys we were talking to talked about all the extra nails and, and, and things they throw into those houses. And I'm not an expert in that area, so I, I probably would sound stupid trying to get too technical. But they do extra things that make their houses survive. And those houses are $100,000 houses. They're not $500,000 million houses. So the attention to detail can be there. The problem is on a lot of other houses, when they're just building to code, code's not enough to withstand a major disaster. Right. Uh, Mexico Beach, they raised the code to 140 miles an hour for wind from 130, which it was for Hurricane Michael. But what was that Hurricane Michael? 165 miles an hour yeah. with a 15, 20 foot storm surge. So they're not even rebuilding to a standard that would survive a Michael if it was to happen again. And South Florida does it differently. Um, when we've, uh, one of the guys in our film, Aris Papadopoulos talks about how tough the building code is in South Florida and the standard is, it should really be adopted everywhere. And that's a pretty interesting thing to have a conversation about because there's a lot of places like Mexico beach along the coast of Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, that are just ripe for another disaster. Louisiana, what twice this year they've been uh, hit by storms, one worse than the other, the first one that hit them. And then, um, last year, four of them, that's insane. And there's still places that just get ravaged every year. So it can be built better. And what the, um, the insurance Institute takes a look at is, is, and they only crank up to a category three. I think they only go up to 130 or 140 miles an hour. And, uh, you see what happens to those structures. It's just, it's stunning how, how they can get destroyed so easily. That's the job I want, by the way. That's destroying things. Just, yeah, right. I mean, like they start things on fire and they blow things over and they do. That's like, that's like the like the you know just like what a fun day, right? You're just I know like, ah. it does seem like it would be a lot of fun to do that stuff. <laughs> but you know, I mean, like Fortified, um, they they don't make code. They don't recommend code. They just go through and test things and to make sure that they're that they're working. Um, and I know that you went to Oklahoma as well right yes and what was the experience first of all the where you went to oklahoma just explain the weather situation there and why they have so many tornadoes well first of all it's right in the in the southern plains where you're getting contrasting air masses that hit that area so that's tornado alley you know that's where those cold storms come out of the rockies or the northern part of the country and hit the warm humid air that's in the south and it's the perfect ingredient for a disaster in 1998, I was working in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and more got hit by their first major tornado in the sequence of the next four that were going to hit them. And I had to fly up there to do a story. And I interviewed a woman who the only thing left on the slab of her property was her bathtub and the mattress that she held over herself to wow. not get killed that night. And the devastation around there was just unbelievable. So we went back because Moore did something smart. It took them four major tornadoes to do it. And I think they had like eight or 10 of them over a 10 or 12 year period. They changed the building code, which is huge. That doesn't happen very often. You probably know that better than me. It's hard to get people to just change the building code. Builders lobby to keep that from happening. They have right. a whole lobbying industry to not let that happen. So what they did for the cost of granite countertops, you can now have a garage door that won't blow in. 
you can now have uh, windows and, and, and things on your house that make it more survivable. And um, what we learned in our film is if you're bullseyed by a major tornado of an EF4 or 5, there's, there's probably not much you can do. Uh, Roy Wright was talking about that with us, but it's the houses around it that are on the fringes of that tornado that may be, you know, half a mile to the right or half a mile to the left that used to get a lot of damage too, are now holding up really well because of that, because mm -hmm. of these attention to details, uh, things that, that got changed. And that's huge if you think about it, because it's horrible what happens at the bullseye. But if you're a mile away and your roof gets ripped off and your house is destroyed, that didn't have to happen. Right. And we're getting smarter about it. I think parts of Alabama are doing better a better job, uh, from what I understand. We're strengthening their homes for tornadoes. Um, and it's important. Those are details. Still, what the builder we interviewed in, in Moore said to us was, if people had a choice, if the law wasn't changed, the code wasn't changed, he thinks people still would have chose the granite countertops over the safer house. Right. So which is crazy. It's crazy. You know, one thing I did learn a, a lot about that I never thought would be important is your stinking garage door. And <laughs> like, like the oh, oh, odd choice of you're like, yeah, if you have the right garage door, your house doesn't collapse. It just blows my mind. Yeah. And that, and that's the same with your front door. You know, right. I've seen houses here in Tampa that the door opens out instead of in. And I used to look at that and go, well, that's stupid. Who wants a door that opens out? We all should want a door that opens out because it's so much stronger than a door that can blow in. It's just structurally built different. And um, usually your back door and your side door, a lot of those open out and those doors are a lot safer. But I didn't know there was Kevlar blankets you could buy to put over your front door that could stop it from blowing in and destroying your house. And those are only three or 400 bucks. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things you can do, but still I was amazed by how many people and more did not have storm cellars. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's a small percentage that I would think that would be a must have in an area like that, where you could have your life just destroyed in a matter of seconds. I want to be someplace safe. That's crazy to not have that, but people don't want to spend the money. I, I understand that a lot of people can't afford that, but I asked about that and they said, you can finance these things over 20, 30 years. So the same person that's financing the sports car may want to finance a storm seller that could save their life. Absolutely. Let's talk about this for a second. Let's talk about the the uh, concept of um, trying to get people to be resilient, right? Trying to get people to be prepared. And one of the struggles that we have as emergency managers, you know, what can we do? You, you know, put putting that you know consultant hat on, I suppose. What can we do as emergency managers to reach out to the community um, to get them to uh, to really, I don't know. Um, be prepared because it seems like it's a struggle that we have all the time. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of areas. The question would be who would pay for it. If you could have in inspectors that went through that, that were trustworthy, that could like work a neighborhood and go through and point out vulnerabilities to people. Like, did you know that just by doing these things, your house could be safer. You have to show people what their problems are and what's needed to address them. Because like I said, there could be some very inexpensive fixes they could do. You know, you could go back and retrofit certain things on a house that will make it safer. The problem is most people really have the mentality that it's not going to happen to them. And that's why I showed so many sad stories in our film, because it's an example of, well, these people didn't think that was going to happen. 
nobody ever wakes up and says, I, I think I'll have a disaster today. I think I'll get in a car accident. No, right. it happens. And then you have to deal with it. So what do you do? You make sure you have a safe car. You make sure you have a good crash rating. You make sure you're wearing your seatbelt. I would venture most people put more thought into whether their car is safe than whether their house is safe. Right. Because their house, you just want to be in a nice neighborhood with a good school, maybe a pool in the backyard, uh, close to the beach. All the things you think about. How many people say, well, what is, what's that roof going to be like if there's a hurricane? What's my door? Most people don't ask that. And the, and the average inspector isn't really looking for those kind of things. Right. So, um, you know, what Joel May, who's in our film, uh, used to be a home inspector. And there are guys that actually will come in and look for those things. Get a wind rating on your house. Go on our website and go to the FEMA.gov website. We link you there. Um, if you go to the lasthousestanding.org and understand the flood risk in your area. And, and as uh, um, Brock Long said in our film, which most people don't even think about, we were talking about flooding and he said, if it rains where your house is, it can flood. Right. And so even if you're not in a flood zone, ask the people that lost everything from Hurricane Harvey in Houston who were not in a flood zone, ask them if they wish they had paid three or 400 bucks a year for flood insurance. Right. And most of them didn't. So if you're not in a flood zone, flood insurance is very affordable. Eileen Robichard brings up this point. Says, we do not need to have, uh, we don't have hurricanes, but we now have rain events that cause flooding. And she's, she's absolutely correct. You know, absolutely right. You know, um, we, you're right. If it rains anywhere, we're, we're, we could have flooding. You know, that's one of the issues that we have here in, in California, right? Uh, we have, the odd part about it is where we are, it might not even be, be rainy, right? But because we're down, you know, we're downhill from a rain event, say like in Riverside County or something like that, we can have flash flooding happening uh, in Orange County. And, and people don't even understand that, how that works. They're like, oh, it's a beautiful sunny day over here. Why do I have to worry about it? And, and we do. We have to be paying attention to the weather events around us. Well, sure. And people in Southern California, where, where I grew up, um, there are areas that would flood when there would be what, a couple inches of rain and you'd get all that water rushing off the hills down through Channel Road and, the, and Pacific Palisades. And so um, people get hit by stuff that it's, it's not even your disaster. Right. You know, you're just a victim of somebody else's disaster. And th that happens a lot. So, you know, at the end of the year, you I always wonder when people look back and they go, I spent too much on insurance this year. You got to change that mentality. That's not really where your thinking needs to be. That needs to be factored into what are the costs of living where I am? And I'm just going to accept them every year because this could happen. California, mm -hmm. man, I, I, I couldn't live there again between earthquakes, fires, flash floods. Earthquakes are the scariest. Uh, we had our earthquake expert on in the film, Kit Miyamoto, who talked about in L.A. and San Francisco when the big one, not if it hits, it's when it hits. He said that half the buildings will be uninhabitable in Southern California yeah. and San Francisco. Think about that. Because of how we build, it's gotten better, but it's not like they build them in Japan to withstand earthquakes. So Chilly. They, they make a cost analysis when they're putting up that building and they go, nah, it's probably not going to happen here for the next 30 years. Let's throw it up there. And if it happens tomorrow, you guys are in trouble. Ch Chile has some of the best earthquake codes in, in the world. You check yeah, they have some scary earthquakes there. I they mean, you, you, you have to, but you still hear about roads collapsing. You know, things will go wrong. Uh, but if the structures survive, that's important. And are we building structures to not kill the people inside or for both? You want it to survive 
and not kill people. Absolutely. And then it, a lot of times, I think a lot of the construction in Southern California is so people don't die, but the building won't be livable. So now you're going to have millions of homeless people. Yeah. Which in LA, well, they'll just put them on the beach, right? They'll just uh, <laughs> move down to Venice. Oh, yeah. I could join, join everybody yeah. down to Venice. Um, you know, kind of going back to what you're talking about, like the home inspections. I, I, my wife's, one of my wife's favorite TV shows is that like uh, House Hunters, you know, and all the House Hunters, like Vacation Home House. I mean, she just, it's like on all the time. Yeah, I love those shows. Right. And, and but I, I, I'll, I'll sit there and, and watch it and they're like, oh, we're going to go buy this house like in South Carolina on the beach. And, you know, oh, we're going to buy like this condo with all this huge glass front window. And and I, I'm like watching that. And I told her, I said, ooh, one one big hurricane comes through and that that condo is not going to look like that anymore. And, no. you know, she gets mad at me. She's like, ah, stop ruining it for me. You know, so but uh, well, they don't talk about that stuff. They don't even they don't even address anything like that. Not sure. No. And, you know, when you bring that stuff up, it's like, oh, well, the no fun police is here and you right. kind of get mocked for being the uh, doggy downer of the party. But, you know, if you had to look at the three little pigs, which pig do you want to be? Uh, I want to be the guy house. in the brick house. Right. <laughs> I want to be the safest pig. Most people don't think that way. And after a disaster, it's too late to think that way. So you really have to take those things into account on the front side and know what the true risks are. If you go to Zillow or Realtor.com, I haven't done it lately because I haven't been house shopping, but um, I don't think they reward safety as much as they should. Right. They're looking at beauty. It's eye candy. It's the dressing. You know, it's the icing on the cake rather than the ingredients that, that made it. And those things need to be rewarded. Builders that build safe houses, we should find a way of giving them extra credit for that so they right. stand out. So code isn't enough. They go above and beyond the code because they're concerned. We have this great line in the film from uh, Hammurabi, the co building code from back in the, a, a million years ago, where they said if a house uh, collapses and kills the right. person in the house, the builder would be put to death. Right. They had true skin in the game, right? The builder had something on the line. What do they have now? Maybe they'll close their company and change the name next week and be another... <laughs> Call right. it something else. Yeah, absolutely. They, they they go bankrupt and then they just call it, you know, they reopen them in other businesses. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not going to care as much as you. Now, there's a lot that do. This isn't a condemnation of the construction industry because there's a lot of safe houses out there and there's a lot of, of builders doing a great job. But you need to know what they're building and they're not going to be as concerned about your house as you should be because yours is one of many houses that they're building. I'm sure they don't want to have to come back and fix things all the time. Right, right. But in terms of ultimate safety, the only one that really has skin in the game is you, the person who's buying it. A mutual friend of ours, John Scardina, um, he moved from California to Louisiana, right? And I was talking to him, and, he, and, he, and, and John, I know you're listening, so I'm going to make fun of you a little bit. Not even make fun of you, it's actually a good thing. He pulls up this graph that he creates, right? And it has every single tornado that that went through the area where he was buying, and he found this triangle that was had zero zero uh, tornadoes going through. And he's like, "This is where I'm going to find my new house in this in this triangle," you, you know. And uh, I'm like, first of all, that's amazing that somebody took the time to do that. But who does that when they're looking for besides John Scardina, you know? Well, if you look at more Oklahoma, I mean, we the transition we have to that in the film is from the world according to Garp, where Robin Williams is looking at a house with his wife and an airplane crashes into it. <laughs> and he looks at her and he says, honey, we'll take the house. Do you realize the odds of this ever happening again? It's astronomical. <laughs> right. We'll be safe here. And then we transition to more Oklahoma, 
where it happened and it happened again and it happened again and it happened again. So lightning can strike twice. And uh, so I hope John is safe in that house. But disaster has a way of finding you. Even that fortress in Mexico Beach, they had one little flaw on the upstairs, the top balcony where there was a plug outlet in the roof. Oh, yeah. And there was a little gap there and the wind got in and ripped that off. Right. So Mother Nature finds your mistakes. If your builder puts a bracket in wrong or some tiles in wrong. Um, I had a house where I don't even know how they did this. They ran out of the uh, waterproof uh, backing to put underneath the tile. So they put paper. Are you kidding me? You don't know these things. Little things that s happen along the way can end up just nailing you. And so, you know, it's great to be prepared. What he did is excellent for knowing. I know people in Oklahoma that I've talked to during the film that had never seen a tornado. You know, when we think of Oklahoma, you think you're going outside and you're dodging them every day. And, you know, you get, right. everybody's seen a tornado. There's people there that have never seen them. And then there's people in more that have been hit multiple times. Four times. Hey, George, we're coming to the end. Um, a little, actually a little over time here, but uh, two things. One is you have a podcast now that's on the readiness lab. Talk about that for a second. Um, I have a podcast that I started called Move the World. And uh, the idea behind it is we talk to people who are in their jobs or their lives are doing something to move the world, something to make it better for other people. And so I hope people check it out. You know, we're four episodes in. I got a bunch more coming up um, in the near future. So I would love for people to check that out and give it a listen. And then also go to our website. Um, you can go to thelasthousestanding.org and watch the film. It's okay. on there for, for $3.99. Absolutely. I highly recommend it. I actually paid for the film. Just to let you guys Thank know because I want to support George. But George, actually, he, he's a great guy. Um, he knew that I teach. I, I, teach, I, I speak English as well. He knows that I teach at UCI. And he actually gave my students um, free access to the film for the class. And, and uh, it was great. I do appreciate that. My students appreciate that. Keep it up. But everybody else, go to the thing. Pay the $4. Watch it. It's well worth it. Support George, support the movie, and uh, we'll, we'll appreciate it. Hey, everybody, thank you for joining us this week on, on Ian Weekly. It's a, it's great having you here. And uh, please, you know, follow us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, join us over there. We have some really great stuff that's going on, some polls and information and conversation that's going on over there. And we appreciate you listening. Appreciate you being here. And stay safe. And stay, stay ready, stay safe, stay hydrated. <laughs>